John chapter 6, verses 35 through 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Good morning. Uh, if you're new this morning, uh, my, my name is, is Chris. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm the pastor here at King's Cross. We started this church uh, almost two years ago. Uh, we had our public launch uh, in, in this room. And so if you're uh, our guest this morning, uh, we just want to say thank you so much for being here. We know that uh, you could be so m- like a million other places on a Sunday morning. And so we just consider it an onage, honor and a, and a privilege. Uh, you like how I put those together, an onage. Uh, and um, we're, we're uh, just, uh, yeah, just grateful to, to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, so uh, today, uh, uh, those of you that have been with us, you know that we've been, we are wrapping up today uh, our series uh, through uh, what's called the Great Doctrines of Grace, the Reformed Doctrines of Grace. And that word grace is a word that we all love as Christians, right? It's a word we like to throw around a lot, grace. We sing amazing grace, like we just did a a few minutes ago. We talked about being saved by grace alone. But how often do, do us, for those of us that are Christians, like how often do we stop to dig into the scriptures and really consider what is so amazing about the grace of God anyway? And so we've been walking through the storyline of Scripture, looking at, at the grace of God from five different angles, and we finish up uh, this series this morning. Now, I think it is super timely that we're ending our amazing grace series uh, today, which happens to be Reformation Sunday. How many of you guys know what Reformation Sunday is? Reformation Sunday uh, is, is the last day of October. It's a day when many churches and denominations throughout history and throughout the world will, will uh, 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 acknowledge the significance of the Protestant Reformation, which, which recaptured sort of this biblical vision of the scriptures and how they're our only foundation and this biblical vision of, of the grace of God about how big and amazing and beautiful and irresistible it is. And so before uh, we, we, we dive into uh, this last doctrine of grace, uh, I want to do a quick kind of survey of, uh, of church history around the Protestant Reformation uh, as an intro to our teaching this morning. And I think this will be helpful because really the Protestant Reformation in many ways gave us the doctrines of, of grace. So uh, is that all right with you guys? We do that? Um, I mean, I'm going to do it anyways. It's just helpful to have that feedback. So in this, here, here's how it started. In the 16th century, in the 16th century, the church uh, had evolved uh, into what we know as the Roman Catholic Church. And at that time, uh, the church, the Roman church, was wildly corrupt. They taught this doctrine of, of super irrigation. Super irrigation, which is not in the Bible, uh, and they taught that when Jesus died on the cross because his blood was so precious, uh, which is good so far, right? But they believe that his blood was so precious that when he, he died on the cross, he overpaid what was needed for the sins of the world. And so there was this excess merit uh, uh, that he, he achieved through the spilling of his blood. And all of that surplus, all of that excess merit was kept in this mystical treasury of merit. 
right? So you imagine almost like this, this mystical treasure chest that all the, the, the extra merit that Jesus uh, purchased on the cross is, is kept in this, in this hypothetical uh, or this proverbial treasury of merit. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Mary, the Virgin Mary was uh, uh, highly venerated and so the, the merit that, 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 sh- that she earned was also put in this and like all the super saints throughout history, their extra merit is put in this treasury of merit uh, and the keys to this treasury of merit, because, uh, I mean, if this treasury of merit exists, then you want in on that, right? Because what they taught, too, was that sin and grace was quantifiable. And so depending on the kind of sins that you made or that you, that you committed, you would want to have enough merit to cover for those sins. And so you would, you would do certain prayers, you would do certain rituals, and just to make sure that you covered for all your, your sins, you would want to cash in on this extra merit if that's available to, to you, right? And so uh, uh, conveniently, the keys to this treasury of merit was controlled by the Roman church. And so they said, you know, if you, if you pay us money, they called indulgences, if, if, you, if you paid us money, then we would transfer some of these extra merits to your account, right? So you could purchase some grace from the Jesus blood bank, right? Like this would ensure that you and your family would have enough extra merit to save you from suffering in, in purgatory in the afterlife. Now, along then comes a monk in the church, in the Roman church, named Martin Luther, Martin Luther uh, is studying the Bible for himself one day. He, he's a Bible es- expert, scholar, teacher. He's studying the book of Romans one day, chapter 1, and the Spirit of God just does a new work in his heart. As he's reading the Word, pouring over the Word, praying the Scriptures, the Spirit of God awakens Martin Luther to the church's corruption with this, this teaching. And how wrong it is to quantify sin and grace like that. How that's nowhere in the scriptures. And so on October 31st, 1517, he famously hammers his 99 theses on the Wittenberg door to expose the wicked corruption of the indulgence system. We could say in more ways than one that he nailed it. He Nailed it, huh? Oh, thanks. Uh, so he he uh, so, so he nailed it. So Luther then after this, uh, Luther and, and a bunch of other pastors they would go on from here to to preach the Bible to the common man uh, out in the open in churches and fields. They would preach the Bible to common people, which prior to this it wasn't accessible to them because it was always preached in a language no one could understand. And so Martin Luther would preach the Bible to common man so that everyone could know that you don't have to earn or buy your salvation. Jesus paid it all. It's a free gift of his grace, and all the glory and salvation goes to God. This system, this corruption was stealing glory from God, and Martin Luther said, enough, enough. God needs to get all the glory in salvation. Jesus paid it all. That's what the Protestant Reformation was all about. And then a little bit later, in 1519, 400 years ago, uh, 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 this year, 400 years ago, uh, a group of scholars and pastors got together at what's called the Synod of Dort. Uh, and at the Synod of Dort, uh, they, they got together, put their minds together to sort of search the scriptures to further clarify the bigness of God's grace. And to settle another controversy that erupted around the time, uh, this controversy around the question, does God need us to contribute anything at all to salvation? That's what the debate was going on after the Reformation. And, and so there's this debate going on. Does God need us to contribute anything at all to salvation? And so at the Synod of Dort, they produced a document that would later get summarized as the doctrines of grace to just further stake their, 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 their flag in the ground and say, no, absolutely not. We do, God does not need us to contribute anything to our salvation. We don't bring anything to our our salvation other than our need for it. 
And so these doctrines of grace, these fine, five mind-blowing and heart-melting truths on the grace of God of the scriptures uh, is what we've been studying over these last few weeks. And so by way of review, remember the first doctrine is the doctrine of total depravity, that we're all born rebels without a cause, totally guilty in our sin, totally corrupted and helpless, spiritually dead in our sins, and in desperate need of God's sovereign saving grace. And then the next week, we looked at the doctrine of what's called unconditional election. Unconditional election that taught us that even before God spun the galaxies into their places, before he formed mankind from the dust of the ground, God chose to save a number of people throughout history, not on the basis of anything in us, but according to the sheer riches of his amazing grace. And then we looked at the doctrine of definite atonement, that God saves those people whom he elected through the fully sufficient atoning work of Christ on the cross. No excess merit is needed. It is finished, mission accomplished. And then we looked last week at the doctrine of irresistible grace, that the grace of God is in simplest terms, irresistible. When the Spirit of God awakens a dead heart to new life, he cannot be thwarted. And now this morning, we conclude our series by talking about the great doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. That when God starts a work in us, he's faithful to complete it to the end. That, my friends, is amazing grace. That is amazing grace. It's what we sing about. It's what we celebrate. Every Sunday, it transcends all human understanding and just floors us in awe to just go, God, your grace is truly amazing. It blows my mind. It melts my heart. So now that we've sort of set the stage for where we've been and how history got us, uh, gave us as God worked throughout history to give us these doctrines of grace, well, let me pray for us now. Then we'll get started on unpacking that final doctrine of grace. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we echo the prayer of the Apostle Paul when he asked that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might just see just the wonders and the beauty and the truth and the goodness of your amazing grace. What hope do we have Outside of you, none, Lord. And so would you help us to see your grace afresh and anew in, in maybe a way that, 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 that we hasn't been, uh, in maybe a new way, just, just, just humbles us and floors us and causes us to, to see afresh how amazing your grace is. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So... At the risk of uh, having uh, all you perfect parents out there judge me, <laughs> let me tell you something a little bit about me and having a third child. Right? So my youngest kid, uh, our, our, our third child, Judson, is nine months old. I know this might sound outrageous to some of you better parents out there, but when Judson was first born, I forgot about him all the time. I forgot about him all the time. Now, it wasn't that I didn't love him. It isn't that I wasn't looking forward to meeting him. It wasn't that he was forgettable. I mean, if you've seen him, you know he's the cutest nine-month-old baby in the world at the moment. Fact check that. It's true. I stand by that. And it was, it was just that, 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 so it was just that I wasn't used to having a third kid to sling around. So we had, 
at the time that he was born, we had three kids under the age of five, including him. And so I just got used to being on dad duty for like our older two because my wife, uh, Alyssa, was, was, was constantly feeding and carrying uh, uh, the new one as I called him, right? And every time we would show up somewhere in our minivan rolling five deep with all three kids, I would get out of the car, wrangle the two older ones like I was used to, and just forget about the new one. I'd forget about Judson. Alyssa always had him covered, and so I just forget about him when we go places. And I start walking away from the van. Uh, I would lock the doors like, right? And then Alyssa would go, Chris, did you forget something? I'm like, oh my gosh, right? We've got another one, right? It was almost comical how densely just I, I, I was, how much I forgot about him. And good news for us, God never forgets his children. <laughs> good news for us is that God never forgets his children. He never has a brain lapse. He's a perfect father. He will never lose you or forsake you if you belong to him. He will be faithful to you every moment, every second of your new life in Christ from beginning to end. And as a result, you will be faithful back to him from beginning to the end. That is the doctrine we call the perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints, we define it as this, that all who are truly born again are, are kept by God to the very end, eternally secure in their salvation, and will never fall away. That's what the Bible teaches, that all who are truly born again are kept by God to the very end, eternally secure in their salvation, and will never fall away. And when we use that, that term saints, when we say perseverance of the saints, what do we mean by that? Because some of us who grew up being, we grew up being taught that saints were almost like super Christians, right? We're like super Christians that get hospitals and schools named after them, maybe a holiday like St. Patrick's or St. Valentine's. But what the Bible tells us is that if you are in Christ, if you're following Jesus, then you are a saint. You are a saint. That's why Paul addresses so many of his letters to the saints. In the letter of Ephesians, to the saints in Ephesus, he, he, he calls Christians, all who are in Christ, get the title saint. And so when we say perseverance of the saints, what we're saying and talking about is, is all those who are followers of Jesus, who've been born again and set apart by God for his purposes in the world, all of those people will follow Jesus faithfully to the end. This doctrine is also sometimes called eternal security, that no one can snatch us from the love of God. I want you to look at Romans 8, verse 30. Uh, again, we're going to be jumping around to a number of different scriptures. Uh, but in Romans 8, 30, we looked at this last week, and I think we may have touched on it briefly the week before that. But in Romans 8, 30, it says this. That those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The theologians call this passage the chain of salvation because each part is like a link in this chain that can't be broken. Can someone be predestined who isn't effectually called? Can someone be called and justified who eventually gets, gets lost, snatched from the Lord's hand? No. No. It's an unbreakable chain. When God starts something, he finishes it. He finishes it. That's how powerful he is. That's how sovereign and amazing he is. That's how beautiful grace is. It doesn't depend on us at any point. It's 100% by God and for his glory. 
I want us to derive, like walk through sort of a, a few different points as it relates to the doctrine or perseverance of the saints. Of all the doctrines of grace, this is the doctrine that is most widely taught and accepted throughout Christendom, uh, but it is also, for that reason, uh, uh, very misunderstood. And so I want us to, to uh, uh, talk about uh, a few things that uh, this doctrine is, is not. And here's the first thing. First thing it is not is that it does not mean that people don't fall from a type of profession of faith. All right? So the perseverance of the saints doesn't mean that people can't fall from professing the faith. They can't fall from true, genuine, saving faith, but, but people do and often will fall from a profession of faith. Unfortunately, a lot of us in this room, we know people that have at one point made this outward profession of faith. Yes, I know Jesus. He is my Lord. I love him. I follow him as God. But then they turned away from that profession of faith at a later point in time. Some of us in this room might even know people who made a meaningful impact on our lives at one point that later in life walked away from the faith that they once held and once taught us. That's my story. That's my story. Few of the people who, who uh, discipled me, especially I'm thinking of one guy in particular who was really instrumental in, in, in just investing into my growth and in, in my early faith when I became a Christian uh, in college, and, and he no longer walks with Jesus today. So how do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of that? If, 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 the, if Jesus says that, that not one of his sheep that belong to him will be snatched from his hand, if, if, if Paul says that those who are predestined will be called, those who are called will be justified, those who are justified will be glorified, then how do we make sense of the fact that that happens sometimes? Read what the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 2.19. His audience that he's writing to had this same gnawing question. If God never loses anyone, then how do we make sense of all of those cats that used to hang with us, that used to be leaders among us, that taught the gospel to us, but now they've departed from the faith? John addresses this in, in chapter 2, verse 19. He says, they, these, these false teachers that used to be with us, he says, they went out from us, but really they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. The idea here is that if you have genuine saving faith, if you're truly born again, a new creation, that cannot be reversed. If you are truly born again, then you will never lose your saving grace. If you lose it, that means you never truly had it. That's what the Apostle Paul says here in 1 John 2.19. That's why the Christian can sing with confidence what we just sang a moment ago. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. T'was grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. Grace might lead us home. No, grace will lead us home. Another thing this doctrine doesn't mean, number two, is that this doctrine doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want then. Right? It doesn't mean that you can, you can use kind of once saved, always saved as like your monopoly get out of jail free card. Romans 6, the Apostle Paul, he addresses this kind of posture and he says, says what then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin? that grace may abound? In other words, like just because we know God is going to show us grace, should we just blatantly continue in sin so that God's grace may abound? Verse 2, he says, no, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The sovereign grace of God and the good news of eternal security does not give Christians a license to live however the heck they want. 
It should produce this posture. It, it should not produce, rather, this posture of, 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 of saying like, oh, you know, since the Spirit's going to do His thing in and through me, I'm just going to sit back and, and, and not try to make any effort to grow because, you know, God's going to do what God's going to do. I mean, it's true that grace teaches us that our actions don't earn our salvation. That is crystal clear in the Scriptures. Our actions do not earn our salvation, but grace does teach us that salvation produces new activity in us. That's what the new birth is. That's what it means to be born again. We're, 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 it's not that we tack on good things to our bad hearts. It's that God gives us a new heart. If you've been born again, then the things of God that you used to hate or want nothing to do with, the things of the world, or the things of God that you used to hate and want nothing to do with, you now start to have a desire for. You now start to want. You used to have an appetite for the things of the world, but now you have this growing appetite for the Lord. Instead of hiding from Him, you now now seek after Him. Instead of being complacent and apathetic toward Him, you want to please Him and honor Him and live for Him. You won't do it perfectly, just to be clear. You won't do it perfectly, but you can't escape the fact that you've changed that your life is on a new trajectory than where it was before. That's what it means to be born again. My wife and I started talking uh, a few months ago about uh, running like a, a, like a half marathon at, at some point, uh, maybe next year. Uh, and, and, and you know what, uh, it got me thinking, like, you know what makes a marathon runner? You just you buy a sticker for your car, right? <laughs> no, you actually have to run a marathon, right? That's what makes a marathon runner. You can't call yourself a marathon runner if all you did was sign up and never actually run the race. You also can't call yourself a marathon runner if you start the race but never finish it. That a marathon runner does not make. In the same way, you can't call yourself a Christian in any meaningful sense of that word just because you ask Jesus into your heart. There's no Bible verse for asking Jesus into your heart. You can't call yourself a Christian because you ask Jesus into your heart, but then show no fruit of a transformed life of pursuing joy in him and holiness of life. Right? I mean, we, we, we call, when, you, when you're a follower of Jesus today, like we call ourselves Christians. And that word Christian, I think only shows up like once or twice in the New Testament. Uh, but more often than not, what it mean, when, when any time that Christians were referenced in the New Testament, it uses words like those who are in Christ. It means you're united with him. They're called Disciples. Disciple means follower. That means that, that, that you're actually following him, that he is your Lord over your life in every sense of that word. Christians were called followers of the way. In other words, that being a Christian was a way of life. It wasn't a, I got baptized at one point, and so therefore I'm a Christian. It wasn't, I filled out this connect card, therefore I'm a Christian. It wasn't, I asked Jesus into my heart, therefore I'm a Christian. And like I said last week, I'm not, I'm not demeaning the fact that those might be meaningful experiences in a person's spiritual walk. But what I am saying is that what makes one a Christian is that you're a follower of Jesus in every sense of that word, in every moment of your life. You have this new trajectory, a new identity. You're a new creation. And just to be clear, I, I, mean, I really want to be clear that, that we do not work for our salvation. All right? We don't work for our, salva- our salvation, but we do work out our salvation. Paul says this in Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13, when he, when he tells this, the church in Philippi, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
Notice the mind-numbing sort of categories that he talks in here. You got to work out your salvation. Work out, have holy effort to grow in your faith. That's what we're called to work out your salvation with a sense of fear and trembling. Like this matters. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The sovereignty of God and our responsibility, I mean, it just blows open the categories of, 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 of human rationale. No philosophers could have come up with this. No, no human could have come up with the way that our salvation works. But it's clear that we have a responsibility to follow hard after Jesus. But God gets the glory at working our salvation in us and through us. Notice it says it's God's who works in us, but you still get to have to work it out. As Michael Horton says, the question is not what would Jesus do, but rather what has Jesus done? And what he has done for me, how will that then fuel my living for him? That's the question. Number three, I want you to see that this doesn't mean that you won't battle with sin. All right? This doesn't mean that you won't battle with sin. And it's really important for you to hear this because, because if we, all we did was those first two points, you might be sitting here this morning thinking like, man, I struggle with sin. Maybe I'm not saved. All right? But it's important for you to hear that God's promise to sustain us in his saving grace is not a promise to keep us from the presence of sin. All right? If you are battling sin, that is not evidence that you are not saved. All believers will struggle with and battle sin. Sometimes we'll make a mess out of our lives because of it. All right? You need to understand that. You need to hear that and, and get that. The fact that you battle with sin on a daily basis does not mean that God doesn't love you, that he hasn't saved you, that he isn't keeping you. The key word is, is battle. Believers wage war against their sin. Believers are on a new trajectory. You might suffer defeat from time to time, maybe even for seasons of life, but the very fact that you battle sin and hate it is evidence that the Spirit of God is at work in your life. Non-believers don't hate their sin, they love their sin. If you hate your sin, if you want to grow in holiness, man, that is evidence. Be comforted by that. If you're discouraged that, that, that by your battle of sin, know that the discouragement part of it is, is from the enemy, right? The same Greek word for devil, uh, diabolos, uh, also means accuser. That's what he does to us. He accuses us. He berates us. He knocks us down. And so uh, if you're discouraged with your sin, acknowledge that your discouragement, your shame is, is, is from, uh, uh, if, if you're beating yourself up from that, that, that's from the enemy. But the fact that you acknowledge your sin and that you want to grow in it, man, that is a gift of God. That's evidence that the Spirit is at work in your life. The Reformation actually produced this Latin saying, simul justice or justice, simul justice et peccator. Simul justus et peccator, which means simultaneously justified and yet a sinner. It's this idea that every believer is justified by faith in Jesus Christ, but also still sins. A Christian does not have to wait to discover the verdict on their life. Uh, is God going to say I'm guilty or is he going to say that I'm innocent? A Christian doesn't have to wait to wonder what the verdict on his life is going to be. A Christian has the joy of knowing that your verdict was declared on the king's cross 2,000 years ago when King Jesus hung there in your place for your sins and said, it is finished. Done. It's finished. He did it. He accomplished it. Mission accomplished. You don't contribute anything to your salvation. 
You bring nothing to the table of the Lord other than your need. Do you know what changes in your relationship with sin after the new birth? Like once you're born again, you know what changes in, in your relationship with sin? What changes is not the presence of sin, but the power that it has over you. Right? Now there should be evidence that you are over time uh, growing and maturing. But sin on this side of death, on this side of Jesus' second coming, Sin will be present in our lives, but it does not have power over our lives. That's good news, right? Be comforted by that. Be comforted in your discouragement, in your shame with that this morning. And know that by the Spirit of God, by the grace of God and the Spirit of God, saints will persevere in discipleship and following Jesus. And all that it encompasses in reading the scriptures and praying and growing in correction and confession and repentance and restoration, followers of Jesus press on and they don't give up. Perseverance of the saints. So just to be clear, can Christians backslide? Can genuine Christians backslide? Yes. We can, and we do. You don't have to read more than a few pages between Bible stories to see that God's elect saints fail again and again and again and again, apart from his grace. David, King David, God's chosen king over Israel, assaulted Bathsheba and murdered a man to cover it up. Peter, in the New Testament, denied Jesus three times. In the hour that he was needed the most, he denied Jesus three times after saying, I would never do that. Less than a few hours later, he did exactly that. The entire Old Testament is the story of Israel backsliding again and again and again and again. The majority of the New Testament are letters to churches and leaders who are imperfect and need correction. The world, the flesh, the devil all work to lead us away from Christ. But God is faithful. God is sustains us. God is faithful when we slide back to lead us back and to grant us the gift of repentance, which means turning back to him. And when we do, when we repent, we overcome because it is God who is at work in us. Praise God. Praise God for that. Now, I've mentioned a few things at this point that the perseverance of the saints is not. But here's something that it does me, the most important thing that it does me. Number four, the perseverance of the saints tells us that the grace of God never fails. It is amazing. It is beautiful. It is powerful. It is overcoming. It is irresistible. The grace of God never fails. Read these comforting words from Jesus in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 37, where it says, he says, all that the Father gives me Jesus is saying, all that the Father gives me, all who the Father gives me, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I might cast out. I will never cast out, he says. All who comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. The 
perseverance of the saints is good news for the Christian. Don't make Jesus out to be a liar in this verse by doubting the assurance of your salvation. Don't make Jesus out to be a liar by not believing his words. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will lose none of them that the Father has given me. Jesus never fails, and that is the best news. You and I were born into this world totally depraved, corrupted and tainted by sin through and through. And so our only hope in life and death was the saving grace of a sovereign God which is given to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone who's been given from the Father to the Son before the dawn of time, all of those elect, the Son says, I'm not going to lose any of them. I'm not going to lose any of them. I'm going to keep them. I'm going to preserve them. I will raise them up on the last day. He is not a liar. He will get it done. And those who've been predestined will be called. Those who have been called will be justified, born again. And those who have been justified and born again will be glorified. Who does this? God. Did we deserve it? Heck no. Why does he do it? Grace. Free grace. Amazing grace. So he gets all the glory. Last thing I want us to see in this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is that God empowers us to persevere together. God empowers us to persevere together. Notice it's called perseverance of the saints, plural. Perseverance of the saints, plural. I love this word picture from, from, from Jeff Metters, an Acts 29 pastor in, in Houston. He says, God has given an ecosystem, an environment for the saints to persevere in one another. The environment that God has created, has ordained for the saints to persevere in is one another. That's why the overwhelming majority of the commands in the New Testament are attached to this phrase, one another. Love one another. Bear one another's burdens. Pray for one another. Sing psalms and hymns over one another. This is the environment that God has ordained for us to persevere in, the local church. Um, my wife, uh, Alyssa, is doing this uh, toxin cleanse. Is that what it is, right? Detox. detox. Sorry, excuse me. Yeah, I had my vocab wrong. Uh, she's doing a detox uh, with a few members of the church here, uh, and and they, uh, uh, a couple of them, they, they they didn't decide to dive in together until they knew that they could all do it together. Why? Because accountability helps, right? Relationship helps. There's a reason that CrossFit is so successful. You ever notice how a lot of CrossFit gyms look all janky on the inside? Like you're not paying for the facility. You're paying for the community, for the accountability. In the same way, there's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christianity. There's no such thing as solo Christianity. Biblical Christianity in the scriptures is lived out in a community of faith that, that loves one another and encourages one another, co corrects one another, and is committed to one another. That's why we practice meaningful church membership here at King's Cross. We, we, we want to take this seriously. In Hebrews 10 the author of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, the author of Hebrews inspired by the Holy Spirit, when he penned these words, he knew that you and I need Christian community so that we can make it to the day that Christ comes. That's the day drawing near, capital D. The author of Hebrews knows that you and I need the church. We need Christian community in order to make it to the day that Christ comes. That's why God commands it. It's for our good. It's for our eternal good. So we hold fast to our confession and we do it together. Do you, you know what I love about our church family? Honestly, everything. <laughs> I love everything about King's Cross Church, but I especially love this community of people, brothers and sisters that we have around this room. It really is a type of extended spiritual family by the grace of God. By the way, when you start to grasp this doctrine, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, that should actually make you, it will make you a more humble and more patient Christian towards others. It reminds us that, that, that we're in process and so are others. So I don't know how many of you guys are on Twitter, but Twitter was kind of fun this week, right? I mean, like always, it was just a madhouse uh, for a number of different reasons, but particularly, like half the people on my Twitter timeline were celebrating the fact that Kanye West's new album was like straight fire. He was giving glory to Jesus for his apparent new faith in every song in his new album that came out on Friday. And the other half of the people in my timeline were like, well, let's see if his faith is genuine first, right? Let's see if he continues under pressure and under, uh, uh, under pressure from, from, from others, you know? Uh, and, and I just read those, those things. I was like, man, what a cynical way to live. What an awful way to live. Let's spend more time celebrating new fruit and growth. When someone is growing in their young faith, let's celebrate each new step. I mean, yes, for sure. Like, we, we, we want to see uh, a fruit over time. But let's not be cynical about it, right? Let's be hopeful about it. You know what I love about the Apostle Peter's story in the New Testament? I mean, the dude denied Jesus three times, and Jesus loved him and pursued him over and over and over and over until Peter's heart melted and was won back. And then he goes, Peter goes from denying Jesus to preaching at Pentecost in less than a week. Love that. I love that. Let's be honest enough. Let's be honest enough to challenge each other toward growth, absolutely, but let's also be loving enough to be patient with others. Look at what verse 23 says. Again, he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. In all of your backsliding, in all of your ups and downs, in all of your inconsistencies in your personal walk, in all of your imperfections, in all your moments of complacency and apathy that you push through, God will sustain you and grow you until that final day that Jesus returns for us. If it was up to us, we would never make it to the end. If it was purely up to us and our effort, we would never make it to the end. That's why all 66 books of the Old and New Testament are filled with people 
and individuals and kings and prophets and priests and apostles and church planters and pastors and nations that fail again and again and again. But God is relentless in his pursuit. And by his grace, we persevere to the end. Praise God that it's not up to us. He will never leave you or forsake you. His plan never fails. The Father who chose you before the foundation of the world, the Son who went to the cross in your place to pay, atone for your sins, the Spirit who breathed life into your valley of dry bones, made you born again, are all united, our triune God, in securing your salvation into eternity. Maybe you're here this morning and you're still kind of considering this whole Jesus thing. You're still checking Jesus out. I love that, that our church has been, become a church home to a lot of people that have, have, have come here just curious about Jesus for the first time. If that's you this morning, ask God to do what only God can do. Ask him to open the, the, the eyes of, of your heart to see the riches of his amazing grace. And know that this is a church that would love to come alongside you on your faith journey as you, as you seek to learn and grow and, 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 and just knowing more about who Jesus is, why he matters, and what it means to follow him. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're kind of already a wholehearted disciple of Jesus. If that's you, consider the gravity of this, these questions. Has Jesus changed your life? Because you really changed your life. Has he made you new? Has he brought you into a church family? Then would you just give him all the glory for that? know that you did not contribute the smallest bit to that. Will you give him all the glory in that? And for all of us this morning who are in constant need for rest for our weary souls, peace for our worried minds, and salvation from the grip of sin, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. The, the author and finisher of our faith. The reformers had this, had this other Latin phrase, soli deo gloria. Soli deo gloria, it means glory to God alone. At the end of the day, that's what these doctrines are about. At the end of the day, that's what the doctrines of grace are all about. That God may get all the glory. Because he is a worthy savior and he never fails. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.